Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the indictment-free podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on November 10th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, who is eagerly awaiting more pass-through tax relief and is... <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland Francis King Carey School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, first, a very quick uh, thank you to a new patron. I don't know how to pronounce this, but it's C-H-S-U-A-N, and thank you so much, and welcome aboard the Great Podcasting Project. So, Frank, this week uh, we greet, and are delighted to greet, Dr. Vinay Prasad, a hematologist, oncologist, and assistant professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Sciences University. He also holds appointments in the Division of Public Health and Preventative Medicine, and is a senior scholar in the University's Center for Healthcare Ethics. He's nationally known for his research on oncology drugs, health policy, evidence-based medicine, bias, public health, preventative medicine, and medical reversal. Clinically, he specializes in the care of lymphoma patients and attends on the Leukemia Lymphoma Services. As a researcher, he's the author of more than 140 peer-reviewed articles and 30 additional letters or replies in many academic journals, including Nature, the BMJ, JAMA, and many more. His most recent book is Ending Medical Reversal, which the New York Times described as, quote, subtly subversive. Uh, Stat News, eager to pile on, remarked that Vinay is a professional scold, and many of you will have come across his perceptive and almost always pithy Twitter posts. You are one productive scholar and clinician, sir. Welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. And I should give a shout out to the co-author of my book, Adam Sifu, who's a professor at the University of Chicago. Just a few thoughts about what's been going on over the last week since we last talked, Frank. We have had some good news. Despite the narrative about sabotage of the enrollment period for the exchange policies, um, Obamacare, or is it now Trump Care? Surely it's the latter. Uh, Trump Care signups have surged, um, notwithstanding a relative lack of advertising, the uh, truncated period, a lack of navigator funding, and so on. Uh, whether that maintains or not will be fascinating, but uh, uh, the the uh, serious money is still on something between a 1.6 million to 2 million person reduction in the number of insured. Second, a uh, uh, little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, uh, notwithstanding uh, the uh, extreme opposition of one of the nation's favorite governors, uh, the main governor, LePage, the main voters approved of Medicaid expansion earlier this week, which I think is going to add something like 80,000 people to the Medicaid rolls in Maine. The governor is not taking this lying down and says that there's no money for it. And so it's now going to go to the legislature and we'll see what's going on. Finally, in the good news category, um, recall the interim final rule on preventative care services from the Trump administration, dramatically changing the birth control copay free model uh, because of exceptions. And Notre Dame immediately uh, announced that they were going to uh, end 
end birth control coverage for their employees. Well, goodness, this week they reversed that decision and they're going to continue with birth control. But lest optimism consumes you, Frank, there are a couple of uh, pretty important developments going on, uh, first at CMS and potentially on the Hill. First, there are changes to the Section 1115 waiver guardrails. Um, This was previewed uh, first in a letter from then-Secretary Price and Seema Verma uh, to the governors uh, right after the beginning of the administration and her appointment, in which they said they were going to be a lot more flexible, etc., etc. And then Verma herself uh, more specifically previewed the changes with her speech earlier this week in which she talked about uh, allowing for work requirements and so on. And it it included, if you recall, that um, rather odd phrase about the Obama administration's, quote, soft bigotry, unquote, over the issue that no one has yet decoded. Um, So who knows? Anyway, that speech very much uh, previewed the more official uh, statement and new policy that CMS has now issued. There is no better place to look for understanding this than Sarah Rosenbaum's health affairs blog post yesterday. And if you are a an 1115 waiver groupie, uh, this is also uh, a post that has tremendous uh, history and a great introduction into the 1115 waiver program and all of its niceties. The headline piece as far as the published policy directed at the states is that CMS is going to fast track these waivers. And this is particularly going to be the case if some state has already had a policy change approved. Basically, you can sort of bootstrap that into your own application. It's going to get um, uh, fast tracked by CMS. But the real core of this is how CMS under the Trump administration has changed orientation for Medicaid and for for the waiver policy. To quote from Rosenbaum's piece, the new Trump objectives do not mention expansion. Instead, Medicaid's major program objective as seen through the administrator's prism is to alter the behavior of individuals. Medicaid becomes a pathway not to coverage, but to positive outcomes, responsible decision-making, upward mobility, greater independence, and improved quality of life. And Sarah ends that paragraph, quote, in all of this, there is absolutely no mention of Medicaid as insurance. And that really sort of is a a massive undercutting of the uh, Obama administration approach as closely detailed in works of uh, of friends of ours uh, like Nikki Huberfeld and so on. The other piece that uh, we should look at that could be problematic, although health reform is dead, insert zombie reference here, there are persistent rumors that the individual mandate is back on the chopping block as part of tax reform negotiations. Uh, This is not not a matter of health policy in this at this time but rather comes to us because of the search for some kind of counterweight to the GOP's deficit-increasing binge designed to improve the lives of the super-rich. As always, the CBO is there with data, and if the individual mandate was removed, uh, thus removing, of course, one leg from the three-legged stool, uh, CBO says the number of people with health insurance would decrease by 4 million in 2019 and by 13 million in 2027, with average premiums in the non-group market increasing by about 10 
10%. So there's yet another stake in, in the already high stakes game that's going on uh, surrounding tax reform and the budget. Well, thanks, Nick. And I just have a couple of comments on those items. Uh, first being with respect to the uh, enrollment on healthcare.gov. I thought that uh, Helena Len had a terrific piece in the New York Times called Choosing a Health Insurance Plan is Not Shopping. And just sort of talking about how bizarre it is that so many people try to analogize this process to shopping. And she was really borne out this week by news that in many states, a gold plan is now a much better deal than a silver plan because of all of the strange permutations of federal funding and obligations and um, cost sharing arrangements, etc. And so uh, ironically, this is when we most need the navigators to help people figure all this out and their budget's been cut by 90%. The other point I was going to make with respect to uh, the Medicaid expansion in Maine is that apparently the um, governor there, Paula Page, is opting for a massive resistance strategy um, and is saying that he's not going to implement it uh, apparently until the, the Maine legislature cuts other programs and does not raise taxes to fill in the whatever 6% of the Medicaid expansion that would have to be paid for by the state. So this is going to be a fascinating area where we're going to have to see. I I predict that there's going to be a showdown there, and then we're going to see if courts are willing to enforce the main mandates that this be um, uh, this first step to be taken within 90 days of the opening of the legislative session in 2018. So you're going to see a huge, but the good news there is that LePage is term limited, um, but it could be yet another uh, year of waiting and yet more destabilization of what is already a fragile landscape in Maine. And I know that in particular because I, uh, in my class, I assume I assign certain waivers to the medical loss ratio um, for insurance companies in Maine, and all of those characterize the market as being quite fragile. So with that, I'm just wanted to pitch in those two cents and then um, let's uh, let's go to the main course, eh? Indeed, Vinay. I mean, what a what an incredible uh, productive career uh, you've already started. Uh, when I when I first saw just how much you you'd done, I thought you were you were like a, a you know a senior old person like me. But uh, you're, you're you're just still basically a kid. What pulled together these different strands of work? Um, your social media presence your popular writing, if I can call it that, your research, your peer-reviewed work, and of course, a day job. Treating cancer is uh, presumably not the easiest specialty. That's very kind of you to say. Um, I guess I would say that, um, you know, I think all of these uh, sort of outlets, uh, and social media is a relatively new one. I've only been pretty active the last two and a half, three years. Um, But I've been doing research in this space for a lot longer. um, And uh, it all really got started when I was sort of at the tail end of my medical school. Um, When I started to become a little bit more questioning about specific medical practices that that I'd seen kind of happening around me. Uh, And that sort of led to primarily, you know, what I do is is research articles um, uh, and a little bit of writing in the popular press when I feel like that's a better venue for some of these comments. Um, And social media is just kind of, to be honest, an addiction like it is for probably many other people. Uh, And then in my day job, I do see cancer patients about two days a week um, here uh, in Oregon, uh, which actually, you know, I think provides a lot of balance. And if if I was forced to say where my identity was, my identity is actually being a cancer doctor. That's what I think of myself first. And research is sort of only because when you're a doctor, you come across things that may be frustrating or you don't think make a lot of sense. 
sense. And that's kind of how I ended up getting into policy from that angle. And one of the things that I think is so critical about your work, Vinay, is that there's such an emphasis on actual medical practices that may not merely be not helping, but actually harmful to patients. And I'm wondering if you could focus particular on the many critiques that you've leveled against um, cancer screening in general. And then I want to follow up with something about particular controversies. But could you give our, our listeners a sense of the problems of cancer screening? I, I'd first say that, you know, you know, let's let's look broadly at the land of, of medical treatments. Um, there have been some really well done studies that came out about a decade ago from the British Medical Journal, where it turns out that if you look at sort of randomly selected medical practices, and you kind of look for the evidence base, you will find that there is a fair chunk, maybe 20, 30, 40% of things that really are well supported by multiple randomized studies or other high quality evidence, you'll find that there's a small fraction of things that actually is contradicted by the best available evidence. And we've done a lot of work in that space. And that's really what our book is about. But you'll also find that there's this huge tract of medical evidence, maybe 40, 50% of what we do, that there is simply no credible evidence one way or the other. We really don't know if it helps or hurts. Now, somewhere in that, on the cusp of that um, uncertainty versus, I think, sort of unfavorable, early unfavorable evidence is where I actually see most of cancer screening. And I say that for a few reasons. So I will say that, you know, with cancer screening, obviously, I am a 100% supporter of the goal of cancer screening, which is that if there were anything we could do to reduce the mortality or morbidity of cancer in the world, well, we ought to do that. So, you know, I'm, I'm with them on the goal. Now, the reality is, well, what's the data that cancer screening accomplishes that goal? And I think if you think about it, you know, pretty objectively, you would say the first question is, is, is there any credible data that cancer screenings uh, improve overall mortality? And the answer to that is no, there is no such data. The next question is, is there credible data that cancer screenings decrease death from that target cancer? And the answer is for several of these screening tests, yes, there is some data that suggests that's true, such as colon, such as sigmoidoscopy and FOBT. Actually, I paused when I said colonoscopy because actually that hasn't been shown yet. That's an ongoing study. Um, CT screening with lung cancer did it in one randomized trial. Um, there's some early randomized trials of breast cancer screening that show that, but some later ones that actually don't show that. And with prostate cancer screening, it's this perennial argument about two large randomized trials. But the reason I say that is at the outset, we're not talking about dying from any cause. We're talking about dying from this target cancer. And the more you think about that or understand that, you will come to believe that that is not perhaps as good an endpoint as dying for any reason. Because dying for any reason is very objective. Someone's alive or dead. But when somebody dies and you have to figure out why did they die, you have to adjudicate the cause of death. And I can tell you as a doctor who's actually done that, uh, it's a very uncertain thing. Somebody could have prostate cancer and die, but did they die of prostate cancer or with prostate cancer? And there can be imbalances in coding or errors in that measurement. And for that reason, um, and some other reasons that there could be countervailing harms of screening. Um, so I'll give you an example what I mean by that. You could have a screening test that really does lower dying from the target cancer, colon cancer or prostate cancer. It could also identify a bunch of disease that otherwise would not have caused problems in a person's life. And there's a word for that. It's called overdiagnosis. And for some of these cancers, we know that that's a very sizable percentage of the diagnosis is overdiagnosis. It means you were told you had cancer. And in fact, on histology in the microscope, it looks like cancer. But in the rest of your natural life, you wouldn't have suffered any sort of mortality or morbidity, um, any complications from that cancer. And we actually know that happens because of some of the ways we can look at randomized studies. So if you take those patients and you pull them into the juggernaut of cancer treatment, where you get surgery, maybe radiation, maybe chemotherapy, there is some small rate of harm for all of those interventions 
interventions, there's a small rate of death. And there's a small rate of increased, perhaps second cancers. You know, in the case of prostate cancer, you have a slightly, if you get radiation to the prostate, you have a slightly higher risk of rectal cancer. So one can imagine that there may be some off-target deaths. And those deaths, actually, they don't get counted in the disease-specific endpoint. They only get counted in an all-cause endpoint. So for those two reasons, the problem in adjudicating death and this off-target death, overall mortality really is the ideal endpoint. And the paper that we're most known, that I'm most known for is a paper in the British Medical Journal called Why Cancer Screening Does Not Save Lives. And it really just kind of makes this point that what we're talking about is not overall mortality, which is what we talk about in almost everything else in, in biomedicine, except for cancer screening, where we're talking about adjudicated mortality from some causes, but not other causes. So that's kind of a point that I, I make frequently. So in your um, 2017 JAMA Oncology piece, you talk about surrogate endpoints. Could you explain that a little bit more? It seemed fascinating. Yeah. So actually, um, the best explanation I've ever heard for surrogate endpoints is the end is uh, provided by the co-author of, of my book, Adam Sifu, who said a surrogate endpoint is an endpoint a patient didn't know mattered until a doctor told them it mattered. So one can imagine <laughs> that uh, if you have diabetes, um, you know, you didn't know that your hemoglobin A1C or your glycosylated hemoglobin is an important endpoint until a doctor told you that it's an important endpoint and it tracks with all these other outcomes that may matter to you. Um, you know, if you're perfectly honest, actually, although we live in a culture where we talk endlessly of our cholesterol and our blood pressure, once upon a time, people didn't really know that blood pressure or cholesterol mattered. And strictly speaking, those are just numbers. What you really care about is your rate of a stroke or a heart attack or kidney failure. That's what patients care about. And blood pressure and cholesterol, they are surrogates for that. They stand in for that. They hopefully predict that and they hopefully come a lot sooner. But they're not in and of themselves endpoints that matter. And the reason we talk so much about surrogate endpoints in, in the book and in that article um, is because as doctors, we are in love. We're we're punch drunk love with surrogate endpoints. We love to measure them. We love to change them. We love to design our treatments around them and think about them and pursue them with uh, vigor to get them where we want them to be. But we forget that in the history of biomedicine, we have improved surrogate endpoints without improving heart attacks and strokes and MIs and other endpoints that patients actually care about. And knowing those discrepancies should give us a little humility. And we should realize that not everything that lowers your bad cholesterol will make you better off. Some things will, but other things won't. And so we should have a little more caution there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that this, uh, I've been trying to follow that debate in the medical literature and, and just find it very interesting, especially with the rise of precision medicine and other very sophisticated methods of uh, trying to attribute to people some level of like an overall uh, health score um, that seemed to be out there. I just wanted to return a bit to the question of screening. And I, I hope you'll forgive me. I just wanted to read two sentences from a recent article on breast cancer and mammography recommendations, and then just ask a follow-up, which is about two years ago, the American Cancer Society changed its mammography recommendations, and it ruled that for average women, average risk women, yearly mammograms should start at age 45, not 40, and transition to every other year beginning at 55. But the American College of Radiology says that annual mammograms should start at 40 and they are the standard of care. And what I'm wondering here is, you know, how do we adjudicate a dispute like that? How do we find out which is the correct um, 
uh, timing to begin mammography? That's an excellent question. So I guess I would say, well, I guess the first thing is, how do these different groups reach their different estimates? So I will say that all of the groups that make recommendations, the, the American College of Radiology, the American Cancer Society, and the one you didn't mention that it makes very prominent recommendations is the United States Preventive Services Task Force. They all have different rules about the composition of members. Uh, they have different ways they handle potential conflicts of interest. Um, but they're all doing something rather similar which is they're drawing upon the, you know, dozen or more, uh, you know, about about a dozen high quality randomized trials we have. They're, they're trying to draw some sort of um, estimates of what we think the reduction in breast cancer mortality is. And again, not all cause mortality, but breast cancer mortality. And they're trying to put it in models with what we know about the risk of false positives, about overdiagnosis. And different groups reach different conclusions about where the risk benefit balance really tips. Um, does it tip for 40-year-old women, does a tip for 50-year-old women, and they use modeling largely to figure out should it be every year or every two years. Now, one could imagine that actually um, we have better ways to answer these questions. We could actually conduct large-scale randomized controlled trials that would settle these questions rather very quickly. Um, and there have been calls actually, particularly for mammography, to do some very fundamental screening because the reality is a lot has changed from the data that's being used in these models. Um, the treatment of early-stage breast cancer cancer has been revolutionized by differences in surgical technique, differences in radiation, differences in chemotherapy and how we give it and whom we give it to, and some new drugs that have come along. And many people think that some of these trials are frankly um, irrelevant for the modern world. Now, in the other direction, some people say, well, the imaging has changed too. We're catching lesions that we didn't otherwise catch. And so there's reasons on both sides why, you know, some of those data might not be, um, you know, particularly applicable today. But I would say that right now, how is it being settled? It's being settled based on modeled estimates and what people think are acceptable risk-benefit balances. Um, my view of the whole thing is that, you know, there's some really fundamental questions that are unanswered with mammography, which is that, um, you know, you're taking women who are healthy and you're subjecting them to an intervention. And the first question is, do you improve the survival of those women? The answer is, uh, you probably don't. Um, they die mostly of non-breast cancer causes. Um, you may be changing the reduction in uh, breast cancer very small, very marginally. Um, and I'm trying to think back to a graphic from the Swiss Medical Board where they try to provide it as a decision aid to patients. But I think it's something like if a thousand women undergo mammography for, I believe it was about five years or a decade, um, you know, of the thousand, there will be um, uh, 30 to 40 women who die of other causes. And in the group that doesn't get mammography, there'll be five women who die of breast cancer. In the group that does, it'll be four women who die of breast cancer. But non-breast cancer related death could be 39 or 40, and we don't really know. So that kind of gives you a, a picture of for the average risk woman, this is an intervention with a rather marginal or modest effect size at best, and, and there's some uncertainty around that. Um, and I guess part of the work we've done is we've just trying to figure out what are ways we can communicate the appropriate um, knowledge of the risk and benefit to patients um, who can, sorry, and I shouldn't say patients, I should say healthy persons. But screening, we're not talking about patients, we're talking about healthy people. But healthy people should be informed of the potential risks and benefits, and they can decide if they want to have this done for themselves. Um, what I will say is that that's not been the history of, of cancer screening. That's part of the reason why we spend so much time on it is that the history is a very embarrassing history. I mean, women were rather, you know, bludgeoned by professional organizations to do this. Um, just one example, the American Cancer Society used to have an ad they took out that said if a woman hasn't had a mammogram, she needs more than her breasts examined, uh, implying that she's crazy for not doing it. Um, that's the kind of 
uh, uninformative, empty, persuasive rhetoric that has been just soaking this field for years. And only in the last 10 or 15 years has anyone tried to insert some knowledge of real harms and potential benefits to allow people to make different choices based on what they may value. Yes, I think that's a, and particularly this idea of visualization and that uh, contrast you drew. I try to develop this with some of my students with this concept of the number needed to treat, yeah. sort of inspired by Gerd Gigerenzer's work. And I think that, yeah, the more we can think about, you know, how concepts of probability can be communi- communicated to healthcare professionals and through them to uh, patients and the general public, uh, the better. I absolutely agree. And actually, uh, Dr. Gigerenzer, he wrote the editorial for our BMJ paper, which I was very honored. And he makes a lot of these excellent points about how can you get this information in a visual way that allows people to make the choice that uh, suits them. So about a, what, a year and a half or a little bit longer than that now, you wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Post entitled, Why a Cancer Moonshot is Unlikely to Find a Secure. And I can't imagine a better way for a cancer doc to get uninvited from a whole bunch of cocktail parties. Who doesn't want to cure cancer? Who doesn't love moonshots? I mean, <laughs> I know I know we've sort of announced these kinds of programs before. I mean, there was even that West Wing, 100,000 Aeroplanes episode. So I, I know we've been there before, but why apparent pessimism here? So that's, you know, I think you, you put that well. I mean, I guess I'll say that, so this was sort of in response to, at that time, Vice President uh, Joe Biden's moonshot. And I guess I will say that, first of all, um, you know, I have tremendous respect for the Vice President. I was, you know, extremely saddened to hear about the loss of his son. And, you know, as a cancer doctor, uh, if I could give anything that would actually result in cancer going away and not being a problem, we had to deal with, I absolutely would. I would give away anything for that outcome. So, you know, there's nothing I would want more than actually a cure for cancer or to prevent as much cancer as absolutely is possible. Um, so I'm 100% with the vice president on what the goal of the moonshot is. But the reason I wrote that op-ed is because I think that politicians um, are really doing us a disservice, actually, by by using this rhetoric and by the discrepancy between what they are proposing and what is actually needed, I think, to make a meaningful dent in this problem. So I believe that at the time that the proposal for the moonshot was something like, you know, something on the order of several hundred million dollars in increased funding. Um, and I think after some, and I'm forgetting my you know recent history, but there was something about um, how uh, it actually is going to be siphoned away from other funding. You know, it wasn't actually going to be new funding. But you know, let's put this pers- in perspective. We're talking about something that was several hundred million dollar one-time expenditure uh, on on new ways to make progress in cancer. Um, I will say we should compare that against the annual spending by the National Cancer Institute on cancer, which is about five billion dollars. So, and we've been spending five billion dollars year in and year out for you know, about a decade or more than a decade now since the mid-90s and and the growth in NIH funding. Um, So I think at the outset, you're going to have to be, you know, if you're a realistic person, you're going to have to ask yourself, now, if you're spending this much money each year, what is $100 million or a small fraction of that going to do to improve the outcomes? Um, But then some of the things about that study, about the moonshot actually kind of irritated me. Um, They still, I guess it still irritates me because one of the major talking points that came out of the early discussions of what are we going to do differently 
to fight cancer is all this rhetoric about, well, what can the FDA do? The U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And as you know, the U.S. FDA, they're the ones responsible for approving cancer drugs. And they decide um, which drugs have a favorable benefit to harm ratio that are suitable for the public. And a lot of talk was about, well, how can we get them to be faster, be more innovative? And um, I really feel like that is completely missing the point about actually, you know, wanting to cure cancer. The FDA is very fast. They're the fastest regulatory agency of the major regulatory agencies globally. Uh, That was proven in a nice paper by Joe Ross in the New England Journal. They are approving things. uh, I would say they're bending over backwards to approve drugs. Um, As proof of that, I cited a a paper came out a couple years ago that looked at 71 drugs that were consecutively approved for solid tumors. And the median improvement in survival of those 71 drugs was 2.1 months. So the FDA is not overly cautious. They're not setting the bar too high. The average drug they're improving, approving, improves survival to 2.1 months, which to me is not good enough. That's, uh, you know, a, a broader failure of our profession. Uh, for Is that what we really want to achieve, a 2.1 month benefit? And yet they're talking about, well, we need to fix the FDA, make them be better. And I, and I made this comment in the article, which was something like, you know, thinking you'll get cancer cures by fixing the FDA is like thinking you will run a faster mile by buying a new stopwatch. The FDA is not what's responsible for the drugs. They're only judging them based on these metrics. And if anything, they're really, you know, overly generous in how they approve. And then there were some other things in the moonshot, which I felt like, you know, were politicians kind of um, taking credit for things that are already going on. You know, there's a lot of rhetoric about immunotherapy. Well, by the time the moonshot was proposed, we had already had dramatic responses with certain immunotherapy drugs in cancer. And there was about, you know, hundreds of ongoing trials in immunotherapy. And here they come along saying, you know, we want, uh, we want, we're really going to fuel immunotherapy. Well, of course, that's already happening. But I guess my bigger, you know, core problem with this is that um, I do think that there is a broad issue that we do need politicians to address, which is how much should we fund biomedical science? And in this country, we fund it roughly to the tune of $30 billion in the National Institutes of Health. We fund taxpayer funding of health care, something to the order of, and you two will know better than me, but $600, $700 billion annually in healthcare expenditures, probably at a federal level. The discrepancy between what we fund research to fight disease and what we pay for the treatments of disease, which may or may not be effective, that is, I think, an, an unsustainable difference. We need far more funding in the basic sciences. We need far more funding to evaluate uncertain treatments. And if a politician actually said, that's what we need to do, I would actually say, well, you've earned the right to call it a moonshot. And I, I made a joke once that they should really call this a puddle jump for the price uh, tag and for what they really proposed. It wasn't as ambitious as I would have wanted to see. It's a very complex issue. And I think that, you know, it's it's just so easy for them to grab headlines. I follow a lot of work in automation and I see a similar issue. I mean, they call a, uh, a little thing that carries around drugs through the hospital a robot nurse. And it's just <laughs> ridiculous, you know. This hype issue also comes out in your work on conflicts of interests. And, you know, on our podcast, I mean, we've done about 115 episodes at this point, And we are torn on the issue of disclosure sometimes. Because on the one hand, we always want to know what people are getting money for saying. But on the other hand, we have had on uh, empirical researchers here who have questioned the value, uh, some values of disclosure. And so I'm just wondering, you know, in terms of conflicts of interest, 
Do you think we need to move beyond the disclosure model or do you think we need to make uh, disclosure more granular? So, for example, people need to put it on their Twitter account on particular tweets or otherwise do that? Because I I have a sense from the main body of your work that you feel like uh, conflicts of interest are really rife and are distorting the information landscape here. Oh, so I absolutely agree with you on, on, you know, that's that you've summarized what nicely what I believe. I believe conflict of interests are rife, uh, specifically the conflict of financial conflict of interest with biopharmaceutical manufacturers. Um, I follow the literature on disclosure pretty closely. And so, you know, I will agree with with what you're saying about the empirical data. But I, I just want to make a point about disclosure. I think there are three potential benefits of disclosure, at least three that I can think of. One is that disclosure may make doctors actually somewhat more reluctant to uh, take industry personal payments or industry meals or gifts. Um, to my knowledge, no one has actually studied that point, like that ha- is having disclosure led to reluctance among some physicians to take the money or engage in these relationships. Anecdotally, I will tell you, I know doctors who've told me I don't want to go to that meal because I don't want that on my Sunshine Act, um, but I don't know of empirical data that supports that. But to my knowledge, that hasn't been looked at. The second thing about disclosure is having disclosure allows us to do studies on uh, on what conflicts are out there and what they may be linked to. Um, we've done papers on conflicts of interest among users of Twitter. Well, if it weren't for the Sunshine Act and the Affordable Care Act, we couldn't do that study because we wouldn't have that data. So people for, and to my knowledge, no one is saying, no one has looked at how many studies are possible only because of disclosure. And if disclosure does nothing other than to study the problem, it's sort of like, keep, you know, if we do nothing other than the first step is to study gun violence, which has been, you know, something that's been off limits. Um, that's still something to actually have the disclosure so you can actually do the empirical studies so that maybe you can think more about the policy. The third thing is, is your point, which is does disclosure lead to patients viewing their doctors differently or more skeptically or asking different questions. And to my knowledge, that's where the data is all coming from, which actually suggests that disclosure may even backfire, lead to increased trust, um, or lead to no change in trust. And so I think that's important research. It's really valuable, but it misses the point that there are other things disclosure may be doing that has not been studied. And and perhaps we shouldn't be so quick to say, well, better not have disclosure. I think I personally, as a researcher, I really like disclosure. Uh, I, I get, you know, 10 papers, thankfully, you know, because of disclosure uh, that I couldn't otherwise have done. Um, your next point is, do we need to go beyond disclosure? And I think, you know, the reality is it's probably going to be a big yes there. Um, We need um, divestment. Uh, We have um, some, I mean, we can talk about what are the most problematic relationships there are. Um, This researcher at Pitt, um, Waleed Jalad, has looked at um, doctors who were deans of major universities who are also on the board of directors of pharmaceutical companies. And he pointed out that a board of director member of a pharmaceutical company actually somehow takes some sort of oath that they have a fiduciary duty to that company's well-being. And then he says that isn't that fundamentally incompatible being a leader at an academic medical university because there may eventually be some tension there. And I think so that's a relationship that's probably we should really kind of be a little bit more critical of. The other things I think are particularly problematic are um, in my field of cancer medicine, we have a regulatory system where every drug that the FDA has approved has to be paid for by CMS, um, Medicare. Um, Every drug that's recommended by one of seven compendia, which are put together by experts for off-label use with a certain level of recommendation, those also have to be paid for by Medicare, no negotiation. And the experts who write one of those compendia, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network experts, um, a study recently showed that 85% of them have received um, payments from the biopharmaceutical industry, which is actually 
probably, you know, many percentage points higher than the average oncologist in America. So here you have a system where you get experts who are deeply conflicted with the pharmaceutical industry writing off-label drug recommendations that Medicare has to pay for. And I'll tell you, having looked at those recommendations, I believe they're often of low levels of evidence and highly debatable. Um, and, and yet, so this is the system. Um, that to me is a little bit problematic. Um, and it's different than, you know, I, I think so much of the media is, well, your doctor, you're seeing, he's gotten a meal, he takes a sandwich. Uh, that's, you know, we can debate what kind of problem that is. There's a nice paper in JAMA Internal Medicine showing that that is a small bias. But the bigger problem is that the experts in the field who really are the northern stars and guide the rest of us who don't know as well uh, about those cancers, um, they're deeply conflicted. And they're often recommending costly, toxic drugs based on very, what I would call, inadequate levels of evidence. Um, so I believe for them, at least, I think divestment is necessary. The other thing I'd say is, let's talk about editorials. Um, uh, the previous editors of the New England Journal of Medicine had a policy that if you had financial ties to the makers of drugs or devices discussed in the article, you can't write the editorial. We need somebody who's kind of impartial to say whether or not this trial really makes the case for this drug. The new editorial leadership of the New England Journal has changed that rule and says you can't have more than $10,000 in a calendar year from the makers of those products. This rule, they say, is needed because it's the only way we can get experts, but we have a paper that came out recently showing that that's actually not the case. The majority of these, you know, you can find somebody without a conflict, um, and the majority of these, the person actually has no conflict with the maker. But one wonders if, you know, these editorials in the New England Journal, that's like being judge, jury, and executioner of a drug or device. These trials may have limitations. And if you look at it with rose-colored glasses, you're not going to see those limitations. If you get somebody who's a critic, who's a, a very um, evidence-based medicine kind of person, who's a, a strong critical eye, they can write an editorial that I'm sure will actually tank some of these products because the trials have a lot of limitations. And so I think that's another major um, point that uh, bias could play a huge role. So to me, it's the conflicts among the experts that I think are problematic. And I, I'm, I'm not yet ready to throw out disclosure, despite, you know, that excellent data you point out, because I think there are these other dimensions of disclosure we haven't looked at too closely. In the um, 2017 Hastings Center report article that you co-authored, um, you looked at the common sort of defensive argument that comes from those who receive pharma largesse that there's no sort of proof of causation um, between taking the money and, and, and so on. Um, but you argue a different theory, uh, um, which you, you call a positive feedback loop. Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, people who believe the status quo is acceptable, I guess they, they make two arguments. The first argument they make is that if you took away these relationships, we wouldn't work with the industry, so you wouldn't get so much innovation. And so what I want to say is that I'm not saying you shouldn't work with the industry. Feel free to work with the industry. Feel free to actually accept industry money at your university level to conduct clinical trials. That's coded as research payments in the Affordable Care Act's Sunshine Act. What I spend most of my research talking about is general payments, which are personal payments to that doctor. And I legitimately would ask, um, do those have a legitimate role? Um, I am well aware of academics who have conducted many industry-sponsored studies who have a personal rule that they're not going to take money in their own personal bank account. Um, but yet that's not, the, that's not the majority. The majority actually do. And that to me is what I think is the problem. Um, the second thing you were asking is, well, you know, if you, Kevin, you have in every single case, you cannot prove the bias. And I will say 
you know, I make a few points about that. One, um, uh, in many walks of life, uh, we have rules against the um, appearance of conflict of interest, even though we cannot prove that it's biasing. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, Scott Gottlieb, the commissioner of the FDA, cannot be taking $100,000 this year from Pfizer. Um, he can't take $200,000 from Merck. Um, if an employee of Pfizer wanted to consult for Merck, I suspect they would not be allowed to or would not be allowed to receive payments. But an academic professor could consult for both and write the guidelines about whether or not Merck and Pfizer drugs should be used off-label. Uh, okay, so that's an interesting thing. A judge in a court of law can't be being paid by the by the plaintiff. I think we would say, you know, I, the judge could say, I, you didn't prove that it affected my decision-making, but a reasonable person might say, you know, that just doesn't look good and it's potentially biasing. And a congressman can't be, you know, taking bribes, these sorts of things. Um, but what I pointed out in that article was, if you're actually a purist about it and you look at uh, corruption in the public sector and you look at financial conflict among doctors, you will find that there is more evidence that it affects doctors on average than it does politicians. If anything, politicians are the ones who should be saying we should be allowed to take money because there's no data, because the data for doctors is actually a little bit stronger. So that was kind of one of the um, cheeky points we were making in that article, which I'm actually very grateful that you all have read because, you know, it's not one of the articles that has had the broadest readership. So thank you for looking at it. I just had one last question to sort of a wrap up since we're running out of time now, which is, is there any place that's doing it better? I mean, I know when I teach about comparative effectiveness research, I always look to the nice in the UK. Do you think there's something to be learned cross-nationally, or is this really something that we're going to have to solve uh, in the US on American terms? One of the things we can learn from Europe is that it is not always impossible to, and it's not always costs an arm and a leg to conduct randomized trials. Um, in some European nations, they've invested in large observational registries, um, that infrastructure, and they've actually proven that you can embed randomization into those registries and conduct large trials at a very low price per participant. There's a trial for cardiology that's called TASTE. It was published in the New England Journal um, that was actually conducted for $50 per person enrolled in that study. And in this country, we're talking about twenty dollars to $30,000 per person enrolled in a randomized trial. So I think that one thing we can learn from Europe is if you can do a randomized trial more cheaply, um, uh, that will allow us to really answer a lot of these unsolved questions. The second point, maybe we'll talk about hype. What can we learn about hype? I think um, we need to hold people responsible for hype. Um, authors who put out press releases with their articles, the author should put their name on that press release and take ownership of the fact that if this press release has distortion, um, they're going to own that. And because uh, we all know that um, there's a, a whole branch of media called journalism where they just churn out these press releases, copy and paste them. Um, and that really leads to a misinformed public. But we need someone to take responsibility of that. And I think it should be the authors. Um, you talk about conflict of interest. I think um, uh, to some degree, other countries could look to us because we have the Sunshine Act. We have some disclosures that aren't available in other countries. But I think that that's a problem that I think it makes, as you pointed out, it makes me the fewest friends because it really is a problem that many people would be happy to ignore. But I think that's sort of a fundamental problem here. Um, and the solution to that, I'm not sure if it'll come from another nation or will come from, um, I mean, to be honest with you, the reality I think is uh, there is a pendulum on all these issues from drug approval, from how we think about conflict, from how we think about industry relationships. Um, and it swings. And it's swung in one direction for the last 20 years. And perhaps now it's swinging as far in that direction as possible. And it will swing the other way eventually. And when it does, I think there'll be an opportunity for some real reform here. And I think um, we should seize it. Um, and the last thing I should say, because I forgot to say it, was um, you know this whole idea that you have to take personal payments from the industry to work with the industry, I think is just so laughable. Um, I make the point that I've worked with many medical students and we've written many papers together. And did you know not a single one of them 
has paid me $5,000 for my time, although I would be happy to accept that money. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it's just sort of a false, uh, it's a false dichotomy that um, the only way to work with someone is to receive, you know, personal payments from them. We've academics, we all work together uh, in different ways. And, you know, we don't have to exchange money, um, but we can still work together. So did you hear that, Frank? I'm not paying you this week. <laughs> oh, darn. I, tell you, I knew this was a bad gust. Okay. <laughs> and that was the week in health law. A big thank you to Dr. Prasad for joining us. I warmly recommend his website, which is uh, V-I-N-A-Y-A-K-K-P-R-A-S-A-D.com. And you can find links to many of his publications there and uh, uh, lots of information about a, a really intriguing uh, chap. Um, and, of course, if you if you want the pithy comment and um, stay up to date with some um, really interesting trends in uh, both uh, clinical care and also health policy. Um, he is not to be missed on Twitter. He is at Vinay Prasad 82, V-I-N-A-Y-P-R-A-S-A-D 82. That was great fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. We post our show notes at tour.com. I am Nicholas Terry on Twitter, and I'm not nearly as pithy as our guest. Frank, you're often pithy. <laughs> Still going at 140 characters at both Frank Pasquale and at Health PI on Twitter. This too thing is nonsense yep i mean <laughs> got it, boy, got it. <laughs> yeah thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week